I feel like the reason that I am so visible online is because I need young black girls specifically to know that it's okay to be outspoken because the thing that is always lauded over black women's heads is that if you do this, you're going to be alone. TTYA Talks, the podcast. Good morning, everybody. Hi. This is Fab. This looks great. Um, thank you guys for spending your morning with us. This is, wow. I started TTYA Talks now. Ooh, almost, I would like to say, 10 years ago. And um, the podcast has been amazing for me because it's been a safe space to inspire, motivate, and allow you to listen to real authentic stories from authentic women who are talking the things. And I think it was really important for me to give those women a platform to share those stories and to be able to in, in educate, I would like to say, the next generation. Because in this world that we live in now on social media, unfortunately, everything does look very easy and we see the highlights and less of the storytelling behind it. So this platform allows us to connect with those women and just give you guys the real insights. Like, this is how much you're really getting paid. That's what we want to know, you know? Um, so our guest today acts, directs, writes, hosts, has an award-winning podcast, Say Your Mind. She wears... Louder for the people at the back. Um, <laughs> she wears many, many hats and the head that those hats are stylishly perched on. <laughs> is one filled with inclusive observations about society, culture, and specifically black womanhood. Good morning, everybody. I am excited <laughs> to welcome Kelechi Okafo. Thank you. Hi, 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 hi. Hello. <laughs> Good morning, Kelechi. Morning. Welcome to TTY Talks, the podcast. How Thank are you? Thank you for having me. I'm... Here. <laughs> Present in the moment. Yes. <laughs> so with every guest that comes on, I always say, let's start at the beginning. Before we start to talk the talks, let's find out a little bit more about you, your beginnings. Tell us about where you grew up, location, family, education. Give us the background, summarised background gist. Background gist. <laughs> so background gist. I was born in Lagos, Nigeria. Hey. And... Um, and I moved to London, specifically Peckham, when I was five. And I feel like I've been here ever since. But I'm kind of, you know, I'm glad that of all the places, it was like Peckham that I started because, you know, it basically was another version of Lagos, really. Um, you know, <laughs> on Rye Lane. So, well, n not really anymore. But, um, you know, I, I really appreciate that. I appreciate that that's how I kind of got introduced mm. to the UK because um, I think that that also helped to kind of like shape me as the kind of person that I am. And yeah, I've just been been here. I'm the same. I actually grew up in Brixton. So <laughs> I feel like it's the same because I went to a very predominantly black school. Mm -hmm. So I was, I would in a way say I was a bit shielded mm -hmm, from mm -hmm. this, from the world that we're living now because around me, you know, we had Brixton Market, we had all our food. It was a very heavy Nigerian Jamaican community. So I was almost quite isolated. I would say it was probably only really when I got to college and I started working in the real world, I saw less of people who looked like me. But growing up, I would say I was always surrounded by it. So I didn't really notice the real world. Would you say that that was something similar? 
It was, yeah, I guess, yeah. There was, there was, there were lots of black people around, really. Mm. So I just thought, oh, this is how it is everywhere. Yeah. And then it's like, no, baby, it's mm-hmm. not. Um, but yeah, it took a while. It took a while to recognize that. And in terms of like your family set up, like you said that you came from Nigeria to here. What was that kind of transition like? Because I was born here, so I feel like for me we still had a lot of tradition in our household, even though I was born here. My mum was very mm. much like, this is what I know. And it was kind of almost enforced on me. Um, <laughs> what was the transition from actually being born in, in Lagos and then obviously coming over? And what was that family dynamic like for you? I think it was very similar. I feel like at home, you're in Nigeria. Whatever they're telling you outside in school, that is your personal problem at home you're in Nigeria. So I feel like that's what it really was for me. But at the same time, I say that and I would, Yoruba would be, was my first language, you know? And then I remember, of course you learn English, unfortunately in Nigeria. And so I came over here having an understanding of English, but I would go to speak Yoruba first instead of anything else. And I remember my stepdad saying to me at that time, being so young, he was just like, you're going to need to stop speaking Yoruba because you need to get used to where you are now. Like you're in England now, you need to get used to it. And so I feel like from then it was just the switch. And so I think it's interesting these days when elders make fun of young people that can't speak the language but I'm like fam you were the ones at the beginning that were telling them that make sure that you get A in school and make sure like the person that got A do they have three heads or whatever they sort of, like they're saying all of these things to you so obviously if you're telling me to assimilate and I'm somebody that if I have a target I'm going to surpass that target I'll speak English more than the English that, that are speaking it and so it's just interesting now like how you know you say something in Yoruba and somebody will go ah you this girl you sound like an Igbo person first of all I am first of all that I'm also Igbo so yeah but you know they say it as if like you're not speaking it as authentically as you should and it's just like but look at how this happened um so I'm blessed I guess in certain regards that somehow I managed to hold on to being able to read it, you know, read Yoruba, being able to kind of write it. But it does, it, it's annoying that when I speak it, you still... Get the English twang. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's still, it's still that. But it's just interesting that, you know, my stepdad would say that and my brothers, they can't speak Yoruba. They understand it, but they can't like speak it, you know, and I can. It's just going to sound very Marks and Spencers. <laughs> So like I said in the intro, you wear many hats mm. and I think it would be, it would be good for us to kind of digest. And I always say some of those hats are kind of domino effect because some of them you intended for and some of them just were a reproduction mm-hmm. of whatever the domino, how it landed yeah, before. Yeah. Um, so tell us about your career journey, where it kind of began um, and how, because I want to get a little bit into you. Like that, I called this the title of this was like social commentating versus commentating socially, <laughs> and so I wanted to to we'll get there, mm-hmm. but it would be great to kind of hear your career journey and how you kind of started out. Yeah, I feel like in terms of my career, I think a lot of it has been humanly accidental but spiritually intentional. Um, I don't have a clue, you know, where it's going next. All I know is that I go with where 
feels right for me next. And I've always kicked against like five-year plans and 10-year plans. And I know that people are like, oh, that's just what you should do. You don't have a five-year plan. You don't have it, you know, if, before, if, if, you can, if you even want to borrow money from banks or whatever, for instance, they'll be like, do you have a five-year plan? Nah, fam. <laughs> just winging it just you know let go and let god they don't want to hear that because they're like we're giving you money <laughs> have a plan but i the only plan i have is peace joy that is the only plan i have my five-year plan my 10-year plan my 30-year plan do i have peace do i have joy then that's then that's it you know everything else look at how the panoramic came along the panda bear came along and really thwarted everybody's ideas of who they are and where they're going because it started to show that you know when you think about things in that respect like time is a construct and it's been forced on us um because of the society that we live in it's making us think in a very linear way but what if we deviated from the idea of time and just did what felt right for that moment and the next moment and the next moment life would feel less like you're on a hamster wheel or like you're competing with other people so but that took me a while to get to that level of understanding all I knew was I just didn't like anything that was being enforced of, uh, like upon me so I remember my first you know year 10 when you do work experience <laughs> So I had my work experience at a publisher's near Clerkenwell, I think, and um, they did like OK Magazine and them things there. And I remember like after the first day, I went to go and sit in the toilet because I was just like, what is this? <laughs> like everyone has to sit at their desks and be quiet. <laughs> like, I might as well just stay at school. Like, what is this? Like, so even then I knew that I didn't like the office set up. From that moment in year 10, I knew that I didn't like the office set up. I didn't like the idea of commuting to get to there and do all of that. So I already knew like even at you know in year 10 that I did not want to be in traditional employment but then you say that to people and then your mum's like ha huh, god forbid so I struggled I struggled I struggled I brought you to this country and what do you want to, you want to act not, because not, acting's <laughs> always been my focus you know like from from when I was young I've always the moment I touched road in England I was already in a school play, like with my broken English. I was already a Christmas tree first year. Like I, was, I hit, hit the ground running. <laughs> so, so I've always known like performing and doing all of that. That's my vibe. But then you in a household where you're being told that, what do you mean you don't want to be a lawyer? What do you mean you don't want to be a doctor? What do you mean? Because but I understand the financial security or the you know stability that my mum was wanting for me. But I just also knew that none of that was calling to me. Even if I had the quote unquote intellectual prowess to be able to do it, it just wasn't what sat right with my spirit. So, um, you know, my I remember my drama teacher saying to my mum when, you know, like you have the teachers, um, parents, parents even. Yeah. yeah. And so we went there. It was secondary school. And Miss um, Parrott, she said to my mum, like, oh, you know, I really want you to take note of um, Kelechi. She's a really, really great actress. I think that you should like push her in that, go with her in that direction. And she's like, huh. So my own daughter should go and be on EastEnders. Mm -hmm. What is your own daughter going to be doing? I was just like, she's not trying to offend you. She's, 
<laughs> it was meant to be a compliment. <laughs> so, but for the fact that that one person, Miss Parrot, believed in me, I was just like, I'm going to follow it through. So when it came to applying for um, college, I didn't apply to SFX or Christ the King, none of that. I only applied to the Brit school. Like I was like, if I only want to go to one place, why am I applying to other places? So, um, so I you're just, very intentional. Yeah, I was just like, I'm just going to do that. I didn't tell my mom she didn't really have a cute a black clue what you're meant to be doing about them things. So that's that also was a blessing. Like she didn't know. So I was just like, yeah, I'll apply for this one thing. Went to the audition for musical theatre, not really thinking much about it. I didn't even know what musical theatre entailed. I just applied because it said music and theatre. And I was just like, oh, I like doing those things. I didn't know that I'll be doing musical theatre. Um, and um, yeah, I made it, made it through that. But then after that, that's when my mum was like, you must go to university and study something worthwhile. Mm. Um, and so I just went on UCAS and I was just like, law, drama, and see what comes up. And the only thing that came up with was Liverpool Hope University that allowed you to do a combined bachelor's in drama and law. And so I had to basically do two degrees at the same time, essentially, because she wouldn't let me go to uni just to study drama. And I had to do something. And I was like, all right, I'll do law. Um, And it worked out because sometimes them contracts are contracting. So, so even in her kind of like stringent kind of you have to do this it actually did work in my favor um, but I left uni went to um, Atlanta for a bit because I believe that Sierra and I were meant to be friends <laughs> my god I just saw her two I, days ago I, look, <laughs> I swear at the airport so random but I, I love, love her and so I was just like me too I need to one two step so I was just like <laughs> I'll go to Atlanta. I went to Atlanta on a whim. It was a wild ride. It was so all over the place. Glad I did it. Came back. Decided to work at a call center because I was told that that's what you do if you don't want to do the other bits and you're wanting to audition for roles, all of that stuff. Um, and then after a while, I looked at it and I was like, but this is kind of like the office environment that I didn't want to be mm. in. And I'm tired of saying that, Kathy, could you give us five pounds? I'm like, get off my phone. Oh, God. <laughs> all right, fine. So it was just... I just didn't like that energy of constant rejection or whatever, meeting targets or having all of these targets. I just knew that I didn't like that thing. So I just thought, well, what else do I enjoy outside of acting? And it's fitness because I've done athletics for so many years and all of those things and just sports generally. I was, you know, head of sports at secondary school. So I just looked at everything like if it's not acting, it's it's movement. Mm. So I'll become a personal trainer. So I remember going home. Uh, it hit me when I was at London Bridge Station. Like, ah, that is what I'm going to do. So I went home. I was living with my mum and I was like, I've realised what I'm going to do. And she was like, yeah. It's like, I'm going to be a personal trainer while I'm trying to get this acting thing. She was like, yeah. <laughs> she was like, it wasn't what she was expecting. She was like, why don't you go and do nursing? There's time to do nursing. I was like, stop forcing people to go and be nurses. Because that's why they're jocking you in the arm with the injection. They don't want to be there either. <laughs> so, um, but I made it work again, not knowing, humanly kind of like not knowing, but following that intention through. And it popped off like my personal training um, you know, business was doing great. Um, after that, I thought, oh, I'm going to go to a pole dance lesson because I'm teaching everybody all of these things to get themselves stronger. I want to go and, and obviously I saw pole dancing in Atlanta as well. So mm. it's stuck in my mind. And now it makes sense why I went to Atlanta. Mm. All of it kind of, everything seems like really random, but it all kind of tied together. Um, went to my first pole dancing class after a few weeks. They were like, you're really good. You should come and teach, um, you know, because I picked it up so quickly. And within a matter of time I was teaching, but then I looked at their structure and I was like, this 
doesn't work. Mm. Um, and of course, facing the microaggressions that I faced there, along with a twerk studio or pole dance studio in Manchester that tried to get rude. All I realized in that moment was that everything was saying to me, you need to start your own thing. Lots mm. of black American women were messaging me on the internet going, you need to start your own thing. And actually upon doing that, on that journey, I started to talk more on the internet mm -hmm. and things like that. And um, next thing I've got my own studio. So I opened my, my first studio in Clapton in 2016. After a year, I had to close it because it was too small and then opened a space in Peckham that had like two rooms and um, been running, uh, you know, pole dance classes, uh, dance classes generally since, you know, then, even in the pandemic, I was still able to come back afterwards and still keep going. Um, so, but all of those things allowed me to have space to kind of do all the other stuff. So I didn't even know, people would often ask me like, are you a writer? I was like, I'm not a writer, who's writing? I don't, I'm not a writer. Um, then 2016, I remember Daniela Dash, she DM'd me and she was just like, don't want, to, don't want to overstep or anything, but you give out so much free commentary online, on Twitter specifically, somebody should pay you for doing that. Mm. And I just like, what? Get paid for writing, like get paid for sharing my opinion. And she was like, yeah, cause you, look how your following's going up. People are coming and taking your things and they're turning it into articles and you're sitting here tweeting like a tweeter. So, like, <laughs> so I was like, oh, okay. And then the first um, commission came, then the next one, then the next one, then the next one, then the next one. Before I know it, I'm building um, a writing portfolio that I never even intended. All I wanted to do was share my observations, but all it took was like another black woman who saw what was happening go, ah, 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 ah. Mm -hmm. do it in a manner that you get remunerated, you get compensated for the labor that mm. actually does go into that it feels natural to you and I think that that's a lesson I'm learning just because something feels natural to me does not mean that it does not have value because mm. oh yeah of course I can put that together quickly yeah so that's it's your value, it's your value. like get your things so that's how I kind of like got here and so I'm like writing doing the Sally in HR obviously because of the background in um you know, performing arts, the podcast because of the background in performing arts and all of those things kind of like culminated together. Mm. But it has been, a, mm. the spirit has been intentional, but everything mm. else just feels like it's been accidental. So I'm going to split that into two things because I want to talk about you starting your own business because I mm -hmm. feel like there's the entrepreneurial avenue there. And then I want to talk about, you know, your social platform. So let's start with the business because... Um, how do I pronounce it? Kalechnikov. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> I was really I was like <laughs> yeah, I was like, I know why you st why you named it that because I think it's fire. <laughs> but I was like, okay, that's when, especially when people ask me about starting TTYA and getting the finance and starting it up. So, yes, you were inspired by the lack um, of visualization of people who looked like you in that space. You were very uh, vocal about it, mm. and obviously it inspired you to go and do your own. What was the business set up like when you set up for that business? And what are maybe like two or three tips that you would give anyone who's thinking of launching their own business within the fitness realm? Because I think that's the side I would love to hear more about because I feel like when it's very easy for people to be like, okay, I'm inspired by and I just set up my business, mm -hmm. but there's a whole structure behind it. Yeah. And there's things I'm sure you learned along the way in, in setting up that business. Yeah, I feel like you definitely should check if there's actually a market for what you want to do. Mm. Um, but at the same time, 
never worry about oversaturation. People like to throw that word around like over. Oh, there are too many makeup artists or there are too many bakers, but people might just want a cake from you. Mm. Like regardless of how 50, 11 bakers there are, they want your cake. Mm. All right. And so, um, it's funny how it did come about because I wasn't the one that was really pushing for it. It was my partner. He was like, you should take it seriously what these um, women are saying to you. Open your own space. And I was just like, how does somebody do that? Again, I didn't ever see myself as a business person. I didn't ever see myself having like a a physical business that I was uh, like responsible for because my only focus ever was acting. I'm an actor. I'm a performer. I don't do... I don't have time for all of those things. But it's funny when you're being called to do something, things do fall in place. So at the time, we were saving for a wedding because we got engaged in 2015. And so saving for a wedding because obviously, you know, the mums, they want your traditional, they want this, they want that. (laughs) Um, So glad I didn't go down that traditional route. I do not. Looking back on it, I'll be pissed off seeing that white man wearing the traditional garb <laughs> and then pictures flying, flying across the internet. People will not let me rest. Can that change? So, <laughs> so, <laughs> with his hat to the side. God, I'm it. done. Oh, oh. I'm so done. No, I'm happy for the people who have it, obviously, but I just know how people like to come at me yeah. and I'm glad they do not have that to now fling it across the internet <laughs> everywhere. But um, yeah, we were saving for a wedding at the time and he was just like, no, we should use that money get um, a, a bit of money from what he's able to get as a loan and use that to open the space it wasn't even like much you know I don't think we went above 20k um and the reason being I think it would have even worked out cheaper if it was not for the fact that I wanted like these high gloss floor um like laminate floors because I wanted like when you're pole dancing for the light the strip lights to like be reflected because what I understood especially with the way that social media was going even at that point I understood that aesthetics matter people like something that they can pick up their phone and do that that is your best marketing Mm. really if someone feels the desire to pick up their phone and go ah you've got it because that's going to go to their circle that will travel further and things like that. So I knew that the space needed to look like something that people wanted to pick up their phone and, you know, um, post. And I managed to achieve that because people would come through. They wanted the shiny floors. They wanted the changing room that had like collection of cough at the back, you know, the lights with the mirror and, you know, the mirrors with the lights around it, all of those things that I understood aesthetics. I understood what draws people's eyes. um, And so I, I was like, we need to put money into that because polls, polls were like, we had four polls, polls, uh, polls are like 400 euros each. So you got that. Then you've got to pay for the actual space that you're leasing, right? Mm. So, and we got that place for a year. Mm. And so money went towards that. I also then started a crowdfund. Now what people need to understand about certain crowdfunds, especially if it's your business, you don't want to get bogged down with people telling you that, oh, it looks like begging. It looks like this. It looks like that. Actually, when you set up crowdfunds, regardless of how much you're hoping to get from the thing, crowdfunds are also some of your best marketing tools. These are the things I'm realizing in hindsight at the time. I did not necessarily know that because people see that you're um, crowdfunding. They see that you're setting up for something. Even if they can't give you too much, what it means is that like they know that the thing is happening so it's now stayed at the back of their mind so that was useful and people you know donated to that crowdfund and till today like their names are on like one of the walls at the um studio in peckham now um 
And so that was really it. I knew that I needed mirrors. I knew that I needed a floor that people could roll around on. I knew that I needed poles and I knew that it needed to be cute. Um, I focused on those things. When it came to getting the classes, um, you know, getting people into the classes, I don't think I was ever too scared. Initially I was, I was like, what if people don't come? But then I also remembered that I'm the person that had all these sold out classes at the previous studio that I was at. A lot of those people are following me on social media, so they're just waiting for me to have somewhere that they can follow me to. I utilize, you know, like the Groupons, the vouchers, just to get the name out there. So even if, the, even though you're subsidizing how much it costs for people to attend that class, what you're focusing on is getting people no. in first. When you get them in, I know that I don't have power. Um, I don't have any problems when it comes to retention. If people come in, I can keep them. I just need them to come in first. Um, so you know, I used all of those things. I don't. Nobody taught me that. I just knew that I understand humans and I feel like I have a certain level of understanding when it comes to black women and um, what they require what they desire and so I'm going to make sure that I do that thing and I know that if I do what I need to do well I will get the people in and you know it worked to the point where it just didn't make sense I couldn't fit enough people I'd be sorry there wasn't enough space to fit enough people in there anymore and had to move after the year but also I had to move because the guys who leased the space the landlords were very like racist so needed to move eventually but it all worked out to then end up in Peckham but that's it like it was more a case of start small I didn't have any grand ideas of I want to go and open a space in central London because I think that that's another thing as well people are thinking that they need to match people who are on like chapter 20 of their journey and you're on chapter one it's like no I need to go meet them at chapter 20 fam I'm on chapter one so I'm going to do what I'm doing from here so I looked for spaces on Gumtree I didn't even go through the official like um you know estate agents that I found a private landlord because I knew that those estate agents um would also take the piss so I needed to find another way to get the space and I kept looking kept looking until I found a small space um in Clapton on an industrial estate people were like oh aren't you worried because people won't see it passing by and I was like well no because I've got social media and that's my shop front so uh, that's where my footfall is so I will direct people from there um and so, yeah, found a little space on Gumtree and um, did it up so it looked completely different from what we got. And from that, I learned that, okay, I need proper ventilation. I need this, I need that. So then by the time it came to uh, getting a space from Southwark um, in Peckham, I already knew w- what I needed to change this time round. And also by this point, after a year, I'd gained enough confidence to be like, I want to be able to corner this market in a way that makes it hard for everybody else. And when it comes to pole dance studios, how you corner the market, you need high ceilings. Yeah, you need to have the highest poles because people want all the space and people are opening studios and their ceilings are very low. So there's only so much that people can do at the studio. They can't do enough tricks. So the higher your studio is, the better. So I'd already locked that in my mind from when I look for the next space. And so regardless of anything or however you feel about me, do you want a pole? Do you really want a pole? Do you want those high ceilings? You're coming here then. Mm. So it's, it's looking at what other people are doing and being like, what can I do that makes it so you can't do without this? Um, but people don't, and, and I love that you ask questions about that because I don't think people take my entrepreneurial kind of prowess seriously enough. I see a lot of these like 30 under 30 lists. I see these black businesses lists. Like let, these are the black businesses that we should pay attention to. And I was like, and I think to myself, fam, I've been here longer than all of those people. 
one, I've been here longer, and how many of them have been Time Out London's best fitness class, best studio, whatever, t year after year after year. But it's because I guess I let it do what it's doing and I don't shout it from the rooftops. And also, I guess because of the way I present in sort of like my outspoken manner, people don't have that as the archetype of what a business person is because I'm just a bit too informal. Um, and again, I had to look at those things and check my ego and be like, I don't need a list to tell me that I'm a bad man. Like I don't, like I know that inherently. Um, but at the same time, these lists also enforce like, again, that construct of time and it being linear and that like, you need to achieve this by this age and that age. What if I'm a timeless being in a human body? Then why am I forcing things on myself that I don't need to stress that I don't need to force on myself I just do the thing and keep doing it consistently enough and it will find its way but those are like to me the tangible things like start small and really think about the fact that what is it about you that you want reflected in the business that you have and you know use what you have to get what you want I think staircasing is so important I talk about this day in and day mm. out it's like like you said every, nobody wants to do A, B, C, D everybody mm. wants to jump to Z the mm -hmm. end of the alphabet and it's about, and it's about the it's, it's about the journey. When people when I speak about TTYA, I didn't just wake up and be like, okay, yeah, I'm gonna start this brand mm -hmm, and like. Mm -hmm. You know, and people always say, oh, yeah, but your first stock is for Selfridges. I said, yeah, but only because I worked on the shop floor. Yeah, so yeah, I knew yeah. that their ethos was we want this to be the one stop shop for every type of woman. And I'm like, well, as a tall woman, I can't shop here. So it's against your company yeah, ethos. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's how yeah, I got yeah, my yeah, brand yeah, in there. So it wasn't because yeah. I was doing it, you know. So it's sometimes it's about staircasing <laughs> and, and and the journey, what you're learning along that way. If you never started in the small studio, you wouldn't have. There was lessons that you learned to be able to inhibit you to now take it to the next level so it's mm. all always about staircasing so mm. i loved what you said about you know you know not jumping to someone's chapter 20 like mm. knowing where you are but also i think it's important to note for me too to um i've never been on any of those lists <laughs> and it's the same like and i and and in with all due respect you know they really kind of don't mean anything mm -hmm. because as long as you're making money yeah <laughs> that's the most important thing like yes those lists are great and you know we're galvanizing a way to make it feel like it, you have success is attached to them. Mm -hmm. But actually, you will find that there will be people on those lists and they're cobble. They have not seen. <laughs> They've not made any money. Um, so for me, what I wanted to kind of, kind of delve in a little bit more on was um, you've kind of touched a little bit about things that maybe you wish you'd known a little bit earlier. Um, but we're, what were maybe one or two of the lessons that you learned on that on those journey on, on that journey entrepreneurial journey of starting your business along the way? Um, the number one I would say is like um, the customer's not always right. <laughs> I'm no, and the, I say that for so many reasons because um, the, I, if you take it back, the customer's always right. Who was likely to be the customer? And what were you likely to have been? I think that the customer's always right is actually part of a white supremacist construct. Like, it's, it's actually, when you strip all the layers away, it's racist in essence because the customer was always intended to be a kind of, the type of person that you were not ever going to be. Mm. Um, so you would always be the one serving. So they were telling you that they are right based on their kind of status, right? Mm. So I say that because people approach the studio in a particular way. I'm someone that lateness really gets to me. Like motherhood has really had to humble me to figure out how I'm going to do things. But lateness really gets to me. And when it comes to fitness as well, I've got 
to honor my insurance. You need to be warm enough to participate in the class. If you are late, you cannot be warm enough to participate in the class. If you then get injured, that's on me. So therefore, if you are late, you cannot participate in the class. People don't like to hear that. They're like, but what do you mean? Because other studios, look, other studios, they must have insurance that's sky high. They go there. If you want to go, you know, tear a muscle, go there, you know? But it's little things like that, like having boundaries and understanding that it's your business. You can do your business how you want. Controversial take. But even when we see these, like, you know, these Instagram stylists and it's just like, they ask you to come with this, that. It seems like really random things that they're asking for. You could just choose not to go to them. You know, because that's what they've chosen that they want, no matter how outlandish, very outlandish the rest of us think it is. Mm. If it's my business, I'm allowed to say what I want and what I do not want. Mm. Um, And I'm not outlandish in that way. I just say, like, be warm before you come through. I won't tolerate any, like, um, um, racism, homophobia, transphobia, none of those things. Um, we, I, I, I just wouldn't, I'd, I wouldn't have it at the st- um, studio. And then people have learned over time that there are certain things that can't run in that space. And thus it means that it feels safer for people who want to come there to participate in things. Um, conversations evolve all of the time. So even when it comes to pronouns and things like that, one of uh, the teachers that we have at the studio, Layla, she's incredible. Um, she was saying to me, we need to look at the way that sometimes um, people who are participating in the class are being misgendered. Mm. And I thought, that is the point. And so she was like, maybe we can ask people's pronouns at the beginning of the class. And I think that while that was great, we also needed to do something that would remind people all of the time because at the beginning of the class, maybe someone starts off and they, they are referring to that person with the um, correct pronouns, but 20 minutes in, everything's all over the place. Mm. So I said, if they wanted to, let's have like little cute stickers that people can use and they can put it on, on top, you know, with, on their crop tops or whatever. So then people are aware. So even before they go to do it, they see and then it kind of reminds them again until we get into that culture of everybody being respected in that space mm. um so like those are the things i'm always looking at like how can i make this better um and taking feedback in that regard but definitely not feedback in the sense of like oh i was late now you need to give me my, like my money back no no you signed before you attended you signed an agreement contract law Thank you, mummy. Um, you signed an agreement that said you understood the rules of coming here. And the rules are if you're late and you can't participate in the class, that money's gone. All right. So we are uh, and so, you know, you learn those things. You learn that the customer's not always right. You learn to kind of like stand your ground respectfully, you know, stand your ground. And also like delegating is so important. Like mm. I struggle with that because as far as I'm concerned, it took all of me to get me to this point. So the, when it got to the point where it's either I burn out or I let people help, I burnt out. Mm. I kept burning out. And I was like, oh, maybe I need to try letting people help. Mm. And over time, um, I've managed to build um, kind of like a roster of teachers that I trust because I've trained them Mm. in pole. So I know that they are going to be delivering the classes in the way that I want. So when I'm not teaching, I haven't taught for over a year now really I only teach the teachers every quarter I go back and I do I go in and do workshops with them to make sure that everybody's still you know learning themselves but other than that I just take a back seat now I've got two studio managers and it took a lot to let somebody else 
manage my thing because before I had Lev, like to me, that was my my first child, you know, like mm. I brought that into being. So tr entrusting it with people, it really took a while. I was sort of like hovering over them. <laughs> but delegating is um, one of the truest signs of leadership. You have to know everybody's strengths and you have to use those strengths to make your life um, much easier and also to let the brand or to let the business be the best that it could possibly be. Burnout is so real. Mm. I don't even think we talk about it enough. Like burnout is so real. And you know one thing that someone always said to me, you have to let go of the fact that no one's going to do it the way that you do yes. it. And you just have to just let go of that because I feel like that's part of the fear, right? You yeah. feel like, oh, no one's going to do it like me. So yeah. I've got to do it. Yeah. And it's just like, no, sis, it's, it's okay. Yeah. Like that is actually your superpower that no one is going to do it like yeah. you. <laughs> But you have to be okay with, like you said, knowing what people's strengths are. And that's the sign of true leadership. I love that. <laughs> um, I now want to go into more about your presence online. <laughs> um, and link it still back to your business because you said that's how you've been able to garner and yeah. use it as a marketing tool to support and elevate your business. Um, we all know that you've built like quite a large following from talking about issues that affect black British women, I would mm -hmm. like to say, mm -hmm. a lot. Um, what stories are you super passionate about? And I know there's going to be many, but <laughs> what ones do you feel like top tier for you? And why are they so important for you to continue to highlight them? Oh, I feel like there's so many different ones. So many, so many like um, black British women have been kind of lost in like the peripheries and we don't realize you know what they've gone through but I think if we think about more recent cases like um you know child Q for instance that matters to me because I know from um you know trigger warning like sexual abuse as a child I know what it's like to feel like you've been violated in a way that then you have to spend the rest of your life essentially bringing yourself back from the precipice of kind of like destruction as it were and when I saw that child Q case it really really got to me because I just thought this is what happens the state um, individuals are allowed to adultify and to denigrate young black girls and then people will turn around tomorrow and go black women are so angry what what happened what 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 happened for us to get to this point what happened whether we're talking about systemically um, institutionally what happened to get us to here um, and so those are the things that I think about that it's so important for us to protect young black girls because as um, they grow older, they will have to encounter so many things and they need to be armoured with love. They need to be armoured with a sense of, and anchored with a sense of security. And I just don't think that it's there enough in the kind of society that we um, currently kind of inhabit. And I think about like the, generally speaking, like the maternal mortality rates of black women, um, you know, during childbirth and things like that, like that needs to be highlighted because again, it goes beyond just the individual subject. So if we're talking about what do I care about? I care about dismantling um, or being, you know, contributing to the dismantling of like white supremacist patriarchy, I care about that. However it manifests, I care about us being able to name what it is and then being able to take it away. Um, because I use that term because whether it's colonialism, whether it's the transatlantic slave trade, whether it's like, um, you know, getting a reparations, whatever you want to talk about, you still come back to that 
subject because that is the basis that is the foundation of everything that we are experiencing in um, society and whether it's like we're looking at I don't know, disproportionate stop and search rates that actually still, they affect black girls as well. And whether we're looking at the overrepresentation of people who are neurodiverse within the prison system, we are still coming back to that same subject again. Like there's so many things that we can't escape because you know, like a poem that says like, white supremacy is not the um, shark, it is the water. That is what we're dealing with. For so long, we've been pretending that it's this shark that we can just, uh, no, it's the water. So what do we do about the water? Um, so yeah, like Nicole and Biba Henry, what happened to them? Like, how are you seeing two black women murdered? And then the first instinct, your first instinct is to get your phone out and to take a selfie and then, and then send it on WhatsApp. You know, why is it that Diane Abbott and all the black female MPs, they're getting death threats, all of these things all of the time. And everyone's like, ha ha. You know, it's black women's lives, black girls' lives. It's not funny. You know, it's not funny. And I, and I, and I focus on bringing that to the fore online because it intimately affects me. And, you know, I just, I just want it to kind of like be better. What I think for me also to, to layer on top of that is us having those safe spaces to be able to voice and also educating because I feel, especially for... I would say that we're a similar age mm -hmm. um, and a lot of us are first generation. Mm -hmm. So we've had to navigate this Western world. Like you said, no rule book. We didn't have our uncle working at Condé Nast that could get yeah, us yeah. our internship at yeah, whatever. Yeah, yeah. We just didn't have that layup, yeah. right? So many of us have had to navigate, the, and I call it the wild, wild west because it literally is. Yeah. We've had to navigate it, right? And that was part of why this space was set up because it's also what I found is I didn't really have the confidence. I didn't have no one to ask. Mm. I didn't have no one to be like, well, sis, I'm going through this, you know, like, yeah. can you assist? Or low key, I'm in this situation and I'm not here for it because they're talking <laughs> to me one kind of way. <laughs> and I need to find a way to respond to that email without yeah. it now becoming a, you yeah, feeling yeah, like, oh, yeah, yeah. I'm aggressive because, yeah, yeah. you know, so... What systems do you think ideally, and I say this very lightly because mm -hmm. I still feel like it's not going to be, in, I truly believe it's not going to be in my generation that I'm going to see change. But mm -hmm. I feel like, again, we're the first mm -hmm. to really unlock those doors. We're not the ones that are going to kick it open and fuck it up, but mm -hmm. we're going to be yeah, the yeah. first to unlock them, right? So what would, I say this loosely, but what are maybe some of the short, term provisions you could maybe see put in place that would enable long-term change yeah I feel like for me I wouldn't be here literally I don't think I would be here without the works of like Olive Morris mm -hmm. you know um Toni Morrison um you know uh Maya Angelou like I'm thinking about um people who have come before us um, who have done things that have allowed us to kind of like be here um, and I, because I'm so into books and I'm so into literature that's you know bell hooks these are the kind of people um, that I feel like saved me 
and gave me language for things like I wouldn't have the vocabulary to be able to say the things that I'm saying if it were not for the people that came before me and I think that that is what we need a cohesive understanding of history a cohesive understanding of um, the matriarchal kind of like warriors in whichever regard and healers and um, you know people who came before us that allowed us to be to even be here because we talk about, you know, they go, oh, women got the right to vote. When did black women get the right to vote? Mm. You know, like we, there are so many things that other people had to do and possibly die for, probably die prematurely because they were pushing and pushing and pushing before we, we came along. And, you know, for me, it's like energetically making those people proud and keeping the energy like you say going into the next generation so they can do what they need to do so short term I think it's like a robust historical understanding of things and honestly I feel like sometimes um, black women especially in the kind of industries that we find ourselves in they kick against going and getting the history because then it makes us feel sometimes like well I wasn't the first to do it you should we shouldn't be the first you know like I don't want to be I just want to, you know, send that baton on and keep doing um, what needs to be done. And also, I think that sometimes we're scared that if we get the or internalize the knowledge that we need to have about certain things, we'll be ostracized from the communities we already have mm. because we can have this knowledge, we can know these things, and then your brothers, boyfriends, this, that, even you know, other, um, you know, female rel relatives or whatever. They don't have that. And it's like, well, if you're going to choose this path, then you're not, we don't want, we don't want to know. Mm. Like we're happy in the kind of like level of knowledge that we have. So I think it's scary for people to not belong um, if they get more information. So I just, I feel like the reason I am so visible online is because I need for especially young black people to know that and young black girls specifically to know that it's okay to be outspoken because the thing that is always lauded over black women's heads is that if you do this, you're going to be alone. Mm. But what about talking about the fact that a lot of people are actually in relationships right now and they're still alone? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So if you're going to be alone, then why don't you just be physically alone as opposed to like, you know, pretending, mm -hmm. you know, that the fear of aloneness should not be lauded over black women, black girls. It shouldn't be lauded over them as a way to get them to fall in line. Mm -hmm. Like maybe if I am going to be alone, then let me at least be on, alone on a path of joy. Mm -hmm. Because alone doesn't necessarily mean I'm lonely, mm. right? And so I want for us to feel more at home in ourselves because I think that that's where a lot of things happen. And I think that mentorship and, and groups, um, having groups and having kind of like circles like that are so important. I always say, controversially or not, I don't believe that I've seen black sisterhood really in the UK. I mean, I've seen individual interactions with other black women that felt like sisterhood, but as an actual kind of like grouping no because people don't want to admit that everybody's still forcing their way to try to get a seat at that proverbial table and even if you, the chair that they've given you has three legs or you know and then you're wobbling and then or that the mm -hmm. table that you're even on they're only letting you have a crumb it's just like but I need to be there so th before we can do so much like uh, Khalil Gibran talks about it in the prophet and he talks about like before you can go and wipe the laws of the oppressor off your walls make sure that you've first taken down their throne within your psyche mm -hmm. and at the moment everybody's making this big performance of like look at us wiping off the walls but you're still behaving like a gatekeeper mm -hmm. so so nothing has actually changed like what is it like when 
is it sisterhood if the only reason that you're in that WhatsApp group or you're, you're in that thing is that you can't, like subconsciously believe that you are more superior to everybody else that's in that group? Mm. What happens the moment that you are challenged with somebody running parallel to you? What happens then? And I feel like a lot of black women haven't been challenged enough to have people running parallel to them mm. um but these are difficult challenging conversations that we must have amongst ourselves because you cannot do the light work if you do not do the shadow work mm. and there's so much shadow for us to still explore <laughs> there's so much shadow for us to still explore in order that we might be of service to ourselves and each other mm. and more specifically the generations that are coming before us chai <laughs> chai <laughs> <laughs> Chai. <laughs> okay, what does what does purpose look like to you? Purpose right now to me looks hazy. Mm. You know? Um I was saying I like on my like um Insta I have like a close friends list and it's mainly made up of like my patrons from Patreon. But yes <laughs> But yesterday I was saying that you know, I'm having a really hard time at the moment. I'm mm. having a really hard time because it's one thing to feel your purpose and it's quite another thing in your human self to be able to tackle your ego when you know that people are actively blocking you from being able to do things because you're saying too much or you're being too much, right? Mm. This society makes women like ourselves, I feel, feel like you're too much mm. because you're not, falling in line or you're not towing the line you're not doing the things that you need to do in order for people to feel safe enough around you or you know institutions to feel that you are safe enough or a safe enough bet that they can like let you out there and give you a platform I say that because I was meant to be on a morning show this morning before coming here right and um the woman who wanted me to come on is a black woman and she was like you know I want you to come and talk about this thing her white male editor, when they were talking, because, you know, they'll plan everything the day before mm -hmm, going out. Mm -hmm. And so her white male editor, the moment that like, my name is mentioned, he's like, no, not her, not her. She's too extreme. I never want her here. And she's like, but I did tell you that I was kind of thinking about asking her that sort of thing. So he's like, it was the fact that he said she's too extreme. And I was like, what is extreme about wanting black women to live? What's extreme about like abolishing the monarchy? Oh, that's not <laughs> but, but you know, like what, 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 what is what I do, I just to me, and I feel like in some respects it triggered a child wound. That idea of like I remember even in school because I could do so many like varieties of things. Like I was really good at sports, and I was also really good at the performance parts, and I was also really good at my like studies. Mm. I would have other black girls who say to me, "Oh, here comes Kalechi, overachiever." Meanwhile, like there are maggots under my bed because there's no one to help me clean at home and I've got to clean for myself and my brothers. Like we lost our home, but you don't know that. And we're having to live in a church. You don't know that. But all you're concerned about is like, oh, she's making me feel uncomfortable about where I'm currently at. And so when that guy said that, when, it, when the feedback came to me, all I felt was that sort of trigger that, again, you don't know what I'm going through, but you're you are just so intimidated by the fact that I can stand in this space and in this truth and in this vulnerability and be like I don't know all of the things from but from what I know things need to change right and 
you lot work with Pierce Morgan. Like how, but I'm extreme. You know, like you, they'll have the wildest people come on their show saying the wildest things. But me just saying like, maybe, um, you know, black women shouldn't be dying at four to five times the rate of white women during childbirth is, is a lot. It's extreme. It's, it's, it's extreme. It's extreme. It's extreme. <laughs> and so I had to then in that moment, again, remember the purpose. So when you ask that, remember my purpose. And what is my purpose? My purpose is to be as much of me as possible. In every regard, I have to be as me as me can be, regardless of feeling like I'm um, sidelined or ostracized or in some cases blackballed by different industries. I have to stay on that path because actually maybe I wouldn't ever be able to change the institutions from within. Like you can't I guess you can't be a part of a system or an institution that you, one day you're going to replace, mm -hmm. you know? Um, and that is what I see. Like, I need to be part of the change in replacing things that are not working for us. But that did get to me yesterday, and I was putting it in the close friends list because I was just like, this is frustrating to me. And I know that this is not the only conversation that's happened in this vein that I'm too extreme. But also what I hear from it is that you recognize, if there was ever a moment that kind of showed me where I'm at in my career, is that this random white male editor that I've never met, this whatever, however old he is, heard my name and he said, Jesus. <laughs> no. If I can strike fear in your heart like that, as one, Diane Abbott couldn't do that. Dawn Butler couldn't do that. There's not another black woman that you know in this, in this country that you heard their name and you said, never. <laughs> that's all right. You that's succeeded, my, sis. That's... That's my purpose, <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah. that's my purpose to strike fear in the hearts of those who want to keep the gates closed. Like open it now, immediately. By force and by fire. Literally. <laughs> <laughs> we love that. So just to close, I'm going to do some quick fire questions okay. because I know that I, w I love like, I want to put some, have a bit of time to like okay. do some Q&A. Um, fire questions. Favourite city in the world? Ooh. London, man. London, I'm sorry. Upon all the higgy and the haggar. <laughs> <laughs> got a claim, got to claim it. <laughs> Favourite food to eat? Um, suya and Gary. Chai! <laughs> Bush girl! <laughs> um, what do you do to relax in your spare time? Um, I love um, self-pleasure. Hey. I feel like we don't talk about it enough. Like... Get yourself a clip massager or whatever. Get yourself your things or, you know, use, do manual labor. I don't know, but just do, so, do something. It's important. Self-flesh is important. It gets you to know yourself. Okay. Yeah. What, when do you feel most comfortable in your own skin? When I am chilling and um, by myself in my space, probably just talking to spirit, you know. Love that. And what's next? Who knows? Give us the gist. Who knows? I could just pop up tomorrow and just be doing something else. You know, what's next is mainly more writing bits now. You know, we have to think about quote unquote legacy and write. And we were just talking about like young black girls and things like that. So actually I'm moving into children's books. Um, so that's like the thing. So it seems like I'm being quiet. Like I'm going in that vein. There'll, you know, there'll be more, well, there'll be announcements. I haven't made any announcement, but there'll be announcements to come and things like that. But that's where I want to go. Like if we're talking about people need to have a foundational knowledge, they need something to help them change. Children's books 
are going to allow for that. I want, uh, you know, young black kids to be able to pick up books that are talking the things, but are talking it in a way that they can understand. Um, understand. And then it's in their schools. And that is the subversive way that we start to change the world around us by infiltrating these sorts of spaces, especially publishing that is so draconian and antiquated in so many ways and making sure that, um, you know, and, you know, other black publish, uh, you know, authors and illustrators have been doing their things. Mm. I just want to now just, Sprinkle your juice just on top. Something, yeah. Ready. So I'm going to open it out to the audience. I think mean, we've got a bit of time just for like a few questions. You can feel free to come up to the top of the stage and oh, take the oh, microphone oh, and oh, ask oh, Kalechi oh. some questions. Hi, um, Andrea, but you Hi, could Andrea. call me Tola. <laughs> <laughs> um, if you don't mind sharing, if you feel comfortable sharing, how has motherhood changed you, if at all? Um, yeah, motherhood has changed me a lot. Like, I definitely feel that this journey um, has really showed me all the places that I'm yet to heal and where kind of like ego kicks in and how you can cognitively know that you want to do things differently. You know, like you have a child or before you have your child, you're just like, oh, when I have my child, I'm going to do this and I'm blah, 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 blah. And then you have the child and then suddenly things are triggering you and then you're wanting to go into previous uh, patterns. And so it's the constant kind of like, I'm not going to do what I've seen modeled to me. I'm not going to do what I've seen modeled to me. And I'm proud of myself every single day that in the smallest of ways, that those are the things that I see happening. Not just saying no for the, for the sake of saying no or like being like, I'm your mum, so you do no. What does that mean? I'm your mum, so you... That's such a hierarchical thing to say. Like, what, because of your mum, my mum now, who died because they have mum? You know, like, because, you know, like, you know, so like, I have to think about what do I want him to do? Like, what do I want my son to do? Present it to him that way. So, you know, like, it's, it's a real challenge, but it's showing me that literally we can have the theory, but when you have to put that theory into practice... That's a whole other journey. And being as intuitive um, um, as I possibly can, you know, I think you have to feel your way through parenting. You have to feel your way through motherhood um, and try to take out the noise because there's a lot of noise of people trying to tell you what they would and would not do. Um, Because my mum sometimes will see me with my um, son and he does something and she's like, ha, if I was your mother. Well, you're not <laughs> because you know she wants it done a particular way. No, I'm not doing that. We're not. We're not repeating those cycles. I'm doing what I'm doing, and it might not make sense to you today. But I want a child. I want for my child to be able to say to me, "I don't like that you did that," and for me to hold space for that and be like, "I apologize. I shouldn't have done that that way." Um, there has to be conversations. Do we truly want an egalitarian society? Do we truly want an equitable society? Because if you do, it starts in your home. If you are still using hierarchical structures in your home, then of course, what do you expect when they get outside? They're going to be expecting, waiting for the same hierarchical structures. And motherhood also like physically is so easy. And I've said this a couple of times um, in other kind of, uh, you know, chats. It's so easy to do hashtag body positivity when your body conventionally fits with what the what's expected in the mainstream kind of uh, like consciousness or narrative. But motherhood changed my body, like pregnancy changed my body in such a way that I then had to realize, like, you can't just go spouting off at the mouth anymore. Just love yourself. <laughs> like, you really got to love yourself. And that is a job. That is work. That is work. And it just made me have a different mode of 
communicating quote unquote positive things because be in the real world, baby, like be here and really understand that when the conventions are um, enclosing you, it's so easy to say all the things that you need to say. But if you're really about it, you're going to have to do the work. And that's what like, motherhood's shown me. Like if I'm really about it every day, is work every day um, to challenge myself to just be better and to think in a way that is uh, truly aligned with the kind of person that I, I pray that I get to be. I think that um, your purpose is, your, your, I feel like our purpose is revealed to us as much as we can handle. You know, I think, or even if there is no supreme being and it's not just being like dosed to us, we see the next purpose and the next purpose and the next purpose as we go along. The purpose I had between the ages of, I don't know, um, zero to 12 was just to survive based on everything that was happening. I just needed to survive. And then from that 12 to, I don't know, 16 was just to figure out what was, you know, going on. Like, I think that every season there's... A, there's a different purpose. There's a different objective, right? Um, we say it when it comes to like personal training and like fitness, like you have like your goal and then you have the micro goals, right? And I think that the goal is to um, be the true version of my higher self in this physical body as I can be. But then I have micro goals to get there. And that means like facing my, maybe, you know, facing my fears. What are my irrational fears? What are my, what are the things do I need to do to unlearn about myself? All of those things. But um, in a simple way, what I've learned about purpose is to go where your heart feels glad. Like if we talk about racism being persistent trauma, like it is a trauma and we're faced with it constantly. What makes your heart glad? And I'm genuinely, genuinely glad when I am taking information and disseminating it in a manner that makes it more accessible to other people so that they too can know that there, is a, there are words and there are explanations for some of the things that they're experiencing. That makes me feel glad. It makes me feel glad when I'm in a room full of like other um, women, specifically black women. That makes me feel glad. Like when I'm in a room of black people and I know that we're happy and we're laughing. And that's the whole reason that I, you know, I have the podcast live shows and things like that it's a space for us to laugh and to really see each other um so I go with those you know things I feel glad when I'm running you know that is my passion and I don't necessarily know whether it's a purpose per se but what I do know that when I run is that I feel closer to life you like the very act of breathing in and out and having to work on that to get through the journey you know it it I think it's just an interesting thing that the purpose will keep revealing itself to you as you go along and you finish one stage of your life and then the next one, there's something else that you need to focus on. But I think ultimately my purpose, our purpose is to just be as much of ourselves as we can be because I think that the truest version of ourselves is the most beneficial version of ourselves for humanity and for the environment that we live in. Cheers. <laughs> and on that note, guys. <laughs> Kelechi, thank, thank you. you. I appreciate you with my whole... Uh, do you know, I was so excited for this conversation because there's things that we've done, we've seen each other in the industry, but just to unlock this and to unpack this for me, um, I really appreciate the fact that you do digest it. Even just like recently listening to you talk about Lewis Hamilton. I'm not a Formula One person, but... <laughs> 
you know, even you dissecting that for me allowed me to have the knowledge to see what is going on. And it might not be something that uh, uh, adversely that is in my peripheral, okay. but the fact that you can just, it's almost like you give it to me in bite-sized pieces that I can be like, okay, yeah, I'm joining this Lewis Hamilton crusade. Yes, I'm fighting. I'm, I'm fighting with, I'm with you. I'm with you. You know, so I just want to say thank you. We appreciate you. We support you. And I know, sis, it's not easy. It's not easy being the vocal point and being the standpoint because when you put yourself in these situations, it's very easy for people to attack, you know, and I I experienced probably not to the level that you do, but also the blockage. That's a very serious one because because, you know, and uh, unfortunately for us, we are, we, well, I believe that God put us here for purpose and mm-hmm. for us to be able to give the tools that, to, that we never had to the next yeah, generation. Yeah, yeah. So all I can do is say, sis, I appreciate you. We continue to champion you. We support you. Thank you for giving me your time and thank you for being here with us this thank morning. Thank you for having me. Thank Guys, you. Kalechi. <laughs> Yay. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. If you enjoy the podcast, please spread the word rate review subscribe all of that good stuff for any questions please also feel free to send me a signal on instagram or twitter on the handles at irene ttya or at ttya talks